Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we welcome in Damon Can, Utah State University professor of political science. He'll uh, join us to talk about red states, blue states, purple states. Also how things stand in Utah and nationally in this election year as we head toward the primaries. We'll talk about election integrity, faith in the election outcomes, issues that seem to be resonating with voters, whether third parties can gain any traction this year, and uh, many other topics. Uh, as we are early, but we are in an election year, you can email us with your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Love to know what's on your mind. Uh, Professor Ken, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Tom. Nice to be face to face. Indeed, I love uh, it. Yeah, this is uh, this is great. Um, well, let's start with red states, blue states, purple states. We're having an internal discussion uh, here, um, especially with uh, what happened in 2020. Um, significant shifts in uh, Georgia and Arizona. Yes. Uh, so uh, the uh, every time a presidential candidate runs. Uh, they're looking at what their party did in the most recent election, and then they try to identify states that they think they can add to the coalition such that if they win the states that their party won last time but can pick up a few additional states, uh, then they'll, they'll, they'll be able to have a better shot at winning the election. Either come back for a win if they lost last time or build on a, a strong finish last time. And uh, 2020 was an interesting presidential election in that way. There is no state that Hillary Clinton won that Joe Biden lost. Uh, but there are several states, states that Hillary Clinton uh, lost, but Joe Biden was able to win. And so that sparks some of this discussion about whether there might be ongoing trends here or if it just happened to be a one-off on the uh, 2020 presidential election. Um, now, I think it's true that uh, President Biden didn't need those two states, right, to, yes. to win the presidency. But, but it is a very interesting shift in, in both cases. Do you think durable? How durable do you think this is moving to the Democrats? That, that's the big question. Uh, uh, trends, you know, uh, up uh, until about the last uh, 40, 50 years, we talked about realignment elections, these, uh, these very consequential elections where the parties shift and shuffle their coalitions, and there's an underlying uh, seismic shift in the fault lines that divide the two parties. Uh, over the last 50 years or so, it's a little bit harder to make the case for realignment elections, 40 to 50 years. Maybe some would say 1980 would be the last example uh, of a realignment. And what we've tended to see is more a more gradual wandering of states slowly progressing from one place to another. Uh, in the 1980s, for example, Ronald Reagan was successful in winning California, but over a span of time, California trended from a, a swing state and a, a huge swing state as the prize of the presidential election uh, because of the number of electoral college uh, votes that are associated with California uh, to being a solidly Democratic state where no Republican seriously considers the possibility of winning in California. And so uh, we're looking, especially uh, these days, uh, out, out of the 2020 election, Looking at Georgia uh, and at Arizona, as, and, and a lot of people are asking questions about whether those states have trended from red to more of a purple and, and, and states that will be competitive on a more perpetual basis. 
Um, it's it just seems to me amateur. Georgia seemed to be a little more of a fluke um, because of the timing, I guess. And um, then Arizona, where Maricopa County, the most populous county, seems to be trending a little more reliably blue. I don't know if I'm onto something or up in the night. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think before 2020, I want to say the last time that Georgia went uh, blue for a Democratic uh, candidate, uh, I think Bill Clinton won uh, Georgia in, in one of his elections uh, back in the 1990s uh, and had a little bit more of an appeal, I think, as a Southerner uh, for, uh, you know, as, as, as a giving the Democrats a better shot in some of those summer, Southern states. So, uh, but Georgia tends still to be pretty reliably Republican. You know, speaking of, of gradual shifts, uh, Georgia's a, a really interesting state in, in that way. We, in, in national politics, we think of Georgia as being solidly Republican and, and, and being pretty, pretty red uh, as we look at presidential politics. But it wasn't until 2002, uh, 2002, where it was just 20 years away from the first time Georgia elected a Republican governor since Reconstruction. Mm. And so some of those trends in Georgia, uh, while they, they moved a little quicker into the 70s and 80s at the presidential level towards voting pretty reliably Republican, uh, at, the, um, uh, at the state level, uh, it was uh, a much longer process to, to complete that shift of the state. And then trends in urbanization of Georgia and people uh, increasingly moving into Georgia, Atlanta, especially uh, from all over the country rather than, than just being you know, a traditionally southern state. Uh, you know, Georgia has seen some shifts and changes. And then, of course, a, a very substantial African-American population in Georgia that provides a solid blue base for, uh, for, uh, for Democrats in that state as well. And uh, that led, I think, uh, in, in a lot of ways to Biden's ability to carry the state by a narrow margin. Whether that's repeatable in the long term or is it specific to the candidates uh, and, and their campaigns in 22, we're going to need another election or two to, to really decide. Uh, Arizona, though, uh, is, has been trending a little more reliably towards um, – uh, has been trending a little more towards uh, being a pretty competitive state after having been uh, historically um, pretty Republican. They still have a Republican uh, governor, Doug Ducey, in Arizona. They have a Democratic secretary of state, though, at the moment. So you're seeing Democrats succeed in, in statewide office. Uh, in recent years, we've seen success for Democrats in senatorial, uh, as well as, uh, you know, at the, at the House of Representatives level, uh, Arizona tends to have uh, good representation from both political parties, some, some representation at least from both political parties in the mix in their uh, congressional districts. I want to say they've got uh, nine, eight or nine, I think, uh, at this point. Uh, so, uh, you know, Democrats aren't new to Arizona politics and have found uh, effective ways to, uh, to, to run and to win. Uh, but uh, the Democrats that are winning in Arizona tend to be a little bit more monet, uh, moderate. Uh, uh, Senator Sinema comes to mind as someone who, uh, on, on the one hand, is heroized uh, for winning uh, a Senate election in a what has traditionally been regarded as a red state. 
and then subsequently demonized for casting votes that aren't necessarily in lockstep with uh, the typical uh, Democratic senator. Uh, and that puts her in a really tough and difficult position. But she's just trying to find that balance uh, for being the kind of Democrat who can win and be successful uh, in Arizona's electoral politics. Uh, she seems to get the attention, I guess, for the reason you just stated. Uh, so I haven't been paying attention to Senator Mark Kelly. Uh, <laughs> well, he, I think he has a little more progressive voting record, I, I, I think. To, to some extent. Mm-hmm. He's certainly not the most, uh, he's, he's far from the most liberal uh, senator uh, in the Senate, uh, but a little bit more consistent in, in progressive voting. Cinema uh, uh, tends to get a little bit more of the attention uh, as being a little more uh uh, more difficult to predict in some ways in the votes that she'll cast. Yeah. Now, for for Democrats, it seems like uh, Texas always springs eternal uh, hope hope there, and then it always gets dashed. Yeah. Uh, yes. w- would uh, maybe it be hopeful to just quash the hopes right now? I don't know what the, <laughs> what the trends are. Yeah. So you know, there's some underlying demographic trends uh, in Texas: uh, a significant Hispanic population and a lot of growth in the Hispanic population there. Uh, and and uh, um, and you know, the Hispanics are interesting in in electoral politics. Uh, we tend to talk about the Hispanic vote as though it's very monolithic, but the country of origin actually does have a lot to do uh, with um, w- with their politics. Uh, but uh, in in Texas, Mexican uh, Americans, uh, uh, people of, of Mexican heritage who come uh, uh, do tend to come to the United States do tend to be fairly. Uh, progressive and, and solidly democratic in their orientation, uh, whereas, for example, Cuban Americans are not always necessarily uh, as democrat in their leanings, uh, and, and sometimes uh, can be fairly conservative uh, in in their orientation. Uh, but uh, with with that uh, large and growing Hispanic base in the state of Texas. Uh, you know, immigration issues can be complicated for Republicans to work around there because, on the one hand, uh, you know, a, a traditional Republican uh, might strike a stance that's less open to uh, more immigration uh, and 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 uh, more open immigration policies. But on the flip side, there are a lot of Hispanic voters uh, for whom that is an important issue. And so some Republicans in Texas have to figure out how to to balance uh, that issue between uh, diverse constituencies and and, uh, with with increased growth in the Hispanic population. At some point, if current trends continue, there's a lot of hope for uh, Democrats in Texas to believe that they might be able to, uh, with, with continued demographic change, be able to start winning uh, more elections uh, out, outside of a handful of urbanized uh, areas where Democrats win House seats in Texas. Can they start winning um, uh, governor uh, positions? Can they start uh, winning uh, Senate seats and those kinds of things? The, the hope is always there. And as you said, the, it always uh, thus far has ended in disappointment, really, for, uh, for Democrats in Texas. Uh, yes, there are some forces there that could, um, in the long run, I think, uh, lead to some changes uh, in Texas electoral politics. Uh, but we're still a ways off of 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 seeing that as Texas as as a star that shines blue rather than a star that shines red. Mm-hmm. And I guess these changes, uh, you know, to to quote um, 
something in, in the different context it happens gradually and then suddenly, right? You know? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I've been, we, we talked before we went on the air. Um, maybe you can talk about what the you know the study that uh, that, that you were reading, and I, I mentioned that I had um, been reading recently. There, there are there's a phenomenon of Republicans moving to Florida. Uh, because they like former President Trump and they, they like Governor DeSantis and they want to be among, I guess, like-minded uh, people. I guess this, this happens. People just up and move for political reasons? Yeah. So there's there's a book that came out a number of years ago called The Big Sort uh, by a sociologist who uh, evaluated you know, the extent to which people make choices about where they live um, on the basis of politics. And uh, the author makes the case that when people have control over their moving decisions and the kinds of places where they want to live and, and, and places where they feel like they would be happy uh, to live, that many people end up choosing to some extent on the basis of uh, wh- whether it's a conscious uh, desire to be in a red state or a blue state, depending on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, isn't always as clear or whether it might just be based on social factors of things, activities and the kind of social and, and cultural dynamics of a place where you live that happen to correlate with politics. Uh, but we do, uh, the, the big sort shows that uh, people, when they have uh, choices about mobility, tend to end up uh, sorting themselves into uh, states and localities where they feel like they are a better fit politically. And so, so it's not uh, a great surprise to me that a lot of Republicans um, are, have, have some interest in Florida. Certainly Trump has, has kind of chosen to have more of his presence in, in Florida in his post-presidency time than in New York. And uh, Ron DeSantis has, has become something of a rock star, uh, a, a fascinating character in this, in that on the one hand, uh, he has had a lot of praise from Trump and uh, no doubt has, has studied and learned from some of, of Trump's approaches to politics. At the same time, while we have Donald Trump weighing a 2024 presidential uh, bid possibility, DeSantis is one of the few Republicans that we have in the country who has said that Donald Trump's decision to run or not run in 2024 will not affect his personal decision as to whether he runs uh, or doesn't run. And that's very interesting. Um, But uh, he's consistently uh, in polls that don't include Trump. Uh, DeSantis at this point is consistently a front runner uh, in what those polls uh, indicate. and so he's an interesting figure. You know, Florida's an interesting state as well. And we we spoke about uh, Arizona and Georgia and how in the last election or two, we've tended to see those trending from red to being a little bit more purple, kind of more competitive states politically. Florida's interesting in that uh, you know, for many years, the, the 2000 election, of course, decided uh, the, the nail biter uh, of an election in 2000 uh, and has been one of those swing states for many years. 
Florida is a state that's kind of moved a little bit out of you know swing state territory. It's, it's by no means a solid red state, but at least in presidential elections has trended a little more towards being solidly Republican in the last couple of elections, and uh, that's that's an interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, as as we always have several states that are in flux and and uh, sometimes different states moving in opposite directions in terms of their politics. So, uh, you know, expect uh, interesting things, I think, to come from DeSantis uh, in terms of the direction he takes. And if he is, uh, you know, attracting enough attention that people are moving to Florida uh, to to be in a state where he's the governor, you know, that certainly is an indication that he's going to be a force in at least Florida politics and perhaps perhaps national politics uh, in the years to come. You mentioned the polls. We're two years out, of course. We're not two years out from people starting to run, right? They're already starting to run for president. Um, and it'll be on us, be up upon us before we know it. Um, what you said a key phrase: DeSantis front runner in polls that don't include Trump. I think the polls that include Trump would indicate, wouldn't they, that uh, he would li- be the likely nominee. That that's certainly uh, Trump is 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 far and away well ahead of DeSantis and anybody else that you put in the field on the poll. Uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves at this point is. What what does a poll really tell us at a point where we are, uh, you know, uh, where where we're, uh, you know, you know, over two years away from people casting general election votes, and uh, a, a lot of research suggests at this point, you know, what we're really testing is name recognition, and uh, Donald Trump, of course, has that in spades. Uh, and Ron DeSantis has done a very good job of making a little bit of noise and raising his profile and being much more visible uh, in politics than would necessarily be typical behavior for a, a, a governor uh, of, of even of a larger state like Florida. So what we'll see um, right, right now we're in a stage that a lot of political scientists call the invisible primary. Uh, where, uh, as you noted, there's a lot of people who are have, have probably made a conscious decision that they're going to take a shot at running for president. They're just not going to say that yet. Uh, by uh, convention, it's uh, been uh, – people don't announce their formal intentions to, to form an exploratory committee or to formally uh, open a, a, a candidate committee, which is the, the, the benchmarks we use for the start of a campaign. Uh, that doesn't happen until after the midterm elections. So I don't think we'll see anyone formally say I'm running for president until November or December at the earliest. Uh, but uh, they're already working, right? So are they spending a little bit more time uh, making trips to states like Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina, Nevada that have early primaries to build their name recognition there? Are they, um, you know, making more of an effort to, you know, appear on, you know, if you're a Republican Fox News talk shows uh, to raise your visibility with uh, potential core primary voters? Or if you're a Democrat uh, and, and Joe Biden may well have challengers if he seeks the nomination uh, in, in 2024, uh, then you're probably going to be going on MSNBC or trying to write some op-eds uh, that, that end up getting uh, played on the Daily Code 
Rose or, or Huffington Post or on the Republican side, you might be trying to, to show up on the Drudge Report or, or uh, hit the talk radio circuit with uh with, with folks like Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity, uh, it, because you want to get your name out there. You want to get visible. Uh, you want to get recognized, and you want to have people start mentioning you as a potential candidate. And so, uh, look, Trump is the king of name recognition uh, in, 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 uh, in, in Republican Party politics right now, and that's natural. Uh, but uh, if you look back at the history of presidential nominations, there's some interesting things there. You know, two years out um, uh, in 2004, we were all sure that this guy named Howard Dean was going to win the presidential nomination for the Democrats. Uh, and he had a strong national following uh, among more progressive voters. And John Kerry ended up slipping in from behind, doing very well in a few early primaries. Dean kept losing. And suddenly the, the aura of invincibility that Dean had in 2004 uh, had, had disappeared. Uh, in 2008, we knew that Hillary Clinton was going to be the Democratic nominee. Everyone assumed that it was true two and a half years out, the same point where we are today. Uh, and then a little-known uh, Illinois senator slips in, and suddenly uh, Barack Obama is uh, the Democratic nominee. Uh, and uh, Mitt Romney's name recognition in 2008 uh, was very weak. Uh, and, and didn't end up translating, uh, but in 2012 continued to have low name recognition, uh, but Bill campaigned very aggressively in some early primary states and was able to uh, parlay that into some victories uh, or, or reasonable places in the early primary states uh, that led to a boost in name recognition nationally. Uh, and he ended up coming away with the Republican nomination in 2012. So it's still very, very early. Uh, and the candidates who are assessing their chances now are, are making phone calls, trying to talk to local representatives um, uh, uh, and, and, and local uh, opinion leaders within their parties to s test the waters and see, hey, you know, if Trump runs, would you would you still cons consider supporting me? If Trump doesn't run, would you consider supporting me? Trying to lock up consultants, endorsements, all of those things, and assess their chances this early, two and a half, half years out, uh, that they're already starting to build that kind of a, a game. And uh, many people won't make those final commitments until after November, uh, but they're already out there beating the bushes, trying to figure out what's going to happen from there. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little more nationally. We'll get into talking state races. Uh, there's some interesting races. Senator Mike Lee is up for, for re-election this year, I believe, right? Uh, Senator Romney in two years. Um, of course, all of the uh, all of our congressmen are up for re-election. Uh, well, Every two years, right? Yes. Um, we'll uh, talk about uh, that. I'd like to talk a little bit about redistricting as well. And um, definitely want to talk about election integrity, faith in elections. That's a very, very big topic. Uh, we'll have more with uh, Professor Damon Can following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking politics. It's an election year. It's early, but it is an election year. 
And we're talking with Damon Can, Utah State University professor of political science. If you'd like to get us a question or comment, love to know what's on your mind. Um, you can uh, email that to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, um, so we were talking about uh, presidential politics. I just wanted to finish that up. You know, that's two years out, but, but you know, we're all intensely interested in it. Well, many of us are intensely interested, I guess. Uh, some people may just have tuned out but um, on, on presidential politics. But... Am I right in my assumption that w- that whoever the nominees are is going to be close again because that's just how things are, and it's probably going to come down to what uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's going to be uh, you know all uh, all predictions point to a, a close election, and uh, you know the last uh, you know our last several elections have been been pretty close. Uh, it's really back to probably 2008 since we had what uh, what what I would characterize as as, as something of a landslide uh, election uh, with uh, Obama's victory over John McCain, and you know we're in a moment right now in American history where the divisions between Republicans and Democrats are pretty narrow. Uh, the you know we have have not quite parity, but close enough to parity that the elections are always going to be close. And then uh, we're, we're at a moment where we have strong polarization between the two political parties. And given that Republicans and Democrats tend to articulate uh, pretty profound uh, what, what, what voters see as profound differences in, in many ways, at least in the, the kind of rhetoric that we're using in politics today, um, see profound differences between the two parties and have strong emotional reactions favorably typically toward their own political party and strong emotional reactions in very negative ways to the other political party. Uh, so there, there's some interesting research that shows that the extent of polarization when people just answer issue questions may not actually be quite as strong as, as, as you would think given the tenor of our national dialogue these days. But the emotional polarization, uh, the, the, the strength of emotional ties to our own political parties uh, and strength of, of even resentment uh, to the other political party uh, than the, the one that someone belongs to tends to also be very strong. And so this affective polarization or partisan polarization that some might, might call it, uh, you know, in, in some ways is uh, is. Uh, more uh, on an emotional basis than it is actually on an uh, or an attachment basis than on an individual issue basis, uh, and that's that's kind of an interesting state of affairs there. Um, let's talk about election integrity. Um, it seems to be um, a manufactured concern. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I manufactured and uh, and have taken root in one political party. Uh, be- because President Trump has has been raising this continually. Exactly, uh, President Trump raised this uh, in the 2016 election, raised the specter of uh, of election fraud, and that's uh, you know that at at that you know at the, this point in time we just don't have uh, wide uh, evidence of widespread election fraud that would change the outcome of an election. Uh, we've had uh, a, a number of audits uh, in the wake of the 2020 uh, election, uh, Arizona most uh, visibly, 
uh, but uh, as well as in several other states, and the audits have not turned up uh, any evidence of widespread voter fraud. We, we do know that, that from time to time we do have a, a, a ballot that's submitted that isn't uh, uh, properly submitted. We know that that happens sometimes. In the state of Utah, the most common way that that occurs uh, is, um, bless their hearts, uh, moms and dads of LDS missionaries uh, who fill out their, uh, you know, they, they, they act in good faith trying to fill out a ballot for a son or daughter who's serving a mission, and then uh, they sign the ballot for their, their child and submit it, and then the signature verification process catches that. They get a phone call uh, in some instances and explain what happens, and, and, uh, and, and the election official, a county clerk or, or a county clerk's uh, deputy, has to say, yeah, that's actually kind of illegal. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, and, and then the, the result is that those ballots aren't, aren't counted. So... Um, uh, but but we just don't have evidence that that happens often enough or in large enough numbers to change election outcomes. Uh, it's very, very rare uh, for those kinds of things to happen and, and to be flagged. So, uh, but uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, was able to gain some notoriety and, you know, as, as a candidate, um, arguing that that was his inevitable fate, uh, sowed some seeds of discord and distrust, especially among Republicans, in the state of the election process. And, and one of the things that's been interesting to watch uh, about that is elections are run locally. Uh, that, that's something uh, that the founders wrote into the Constitution as a protection uh, against the ability to, uh, to, to engage in voter fraud. Uh, first of all, you'll have secretaries of state, and then especially more than that, uh, local county clerks. And so it's very difficult to try to run up vote totals, even if you were of a mind to do so. And again, there's no evidence that, uh, that, that we see out of this, uh, the 2020 election or 2016 that supports that that was the case. Uh, but uh, it would be very difficult because the power to oversee election is so deeply decentralized uh, that no one person has enough influence over an election to change its outcome. Uh, so uh, that that's, uh, was, was a brilliant safeguard uh, put in, in place by the founders uh, to protect the integrity of our elections, and that continues to do so. Interestingly, many of the audits that did take place took place in very conservative and very Republican uh, states or counties uh, because that's where a base of voters uh, that, that was, were concerned about this um, were concentrated in large enough numbers to spur uh, that action. But the result has been that when you inspect uh, the votes there, that it's, uh, you know, again, uh, we, we keep finding results from these audits that show uh, no fraud, uh, uh, no, no widespread inaccuracies or, or fundamental problems with vote totals. Do you think that decentralization, you, you, you say that's a you know, say good safeguard, uh, do you think that's going to hold? It, it, seems, uh, it seems like that shows a fragility of the system in a close election where maybe only you'd need two states, maybe. And uh, in some states, uh, legislatures are voting themselves the power to override you know, election results. Um, and, and if you elect the, the right from your point of view, uh, you know, an election official, secretary of state or lieutenant governor or whatever it might be, and that person 
absent any evidence, decides nevertheless to override an election. You know, we we um, uh, I think it's it's well that we all get educated. And we are getting educated on this the 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 arcane nature of how this process happens after election day, right? Yeah, I mean, usually, uh, you know, the 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 way elections go is that you uh, stay up on election night and you listen to hopefully Utah Public Radio. I'm a fan, uh, but uh, or or whatever uh, wherever you get your news, and then you wait for the unofficial returns to come in, and we assume that we know who who the victor was. Uh, you know, the the thing I would recommend most to anyone who had reservations about the uh, election process is put a phone call to your county clerk. Uh, reach out and say, hey, I just have some worries about how the election process works. Would it be okay for me to come down and check it out? Uh, could I could I stop by and, and, and have a visit? Uh, take a tour of, of the county clerk's uh, facilities. Uh, let them or, or their staff speak with you and, and talk uh, about the processes they use. Uh, I, I think for a lot of people, you'll find that, that uh, our, our county clerks are very hardworking. Uh, they're very much dedicated to one thing more than anything else, and that is determining what the voice of the people was and then respecting what the, what the people said. Uh, and uh, as part of my research work, uh, uh, here at, at Utah State, um, either myself or colleagues and collaborators have interviewed just about every county clerk in the state of Utah, uh, and, and in some instances several times. And uh, my experience has uniformly been that there are people who are just trying to do right by, by the people of Utah. And my hunch is we'd find very similar things uh, in, in, in explorations uh, of county clerks across uh, the state. Or across the United States. Uh, now, you spoke about uh, trends towards, well, should we give state legislators, uh, state legislatures uh, options to override or change or, or a secretary of state or some single official? Uh, and I'm just going to, you know, for, based on, on my perspective, uh, put, put a, a, a stake or a flag in the ground and say this is just not good for democracy. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, on the basketball court, you never want the referee to be the person who decides the outcome of a basketball game. And election officials are the same way as, as officials in, in basketball, uh, baseball, football, or, or any sport. Uh, we need them uh, to be there to make sure that the rules are followed but we never want an election official to be the one who decides the outcome of the election. Uh, the Constitution does grant state legislatures the power uh, to direct the manner in which their electors to the Electoral College are chosen. Uh, we have a very long history and tradition in the United States of, of electors being chosen by, uh, by uh, the, the voice of the people. And uh, I think changing that uh, and, and empowering one person to just decide uh, who that is uh, should be concerning to, to, to everyone in the country, uh, Republican, Democrat, or Independent. And, and the reason why is you may think that in your state, in this election, that you can get the right person in to decide, regardless of what everyone else thinks, the election in the way that you would like the election to be decided. But there's a lot that we don't know. And that is, if you can do it in your state, 
someone else can do it in their state and they're not going to share your party affiliation. And you don't know but that four years from now that that election official uh, or the, the person who's appointed to that role may not share your values, may not share your preferences. Uh, and for that reason, uh, we're much safer going uh, with basic uh, democratic republic processes where we select uh, our representatives and select presidents, select presidential electors uh, by the voice of the people where we at least know that the process is fair and that everyone gets a shot at it as opposed to some sort of shady backroom deal where one person is chosen. And then that person may be forced to lead a, a state, uh, a congressional district, or a country without having the support of the people that they're supposed to be representing. And that's just a really difficult position to be in. Uh, one more thing on this, and this is, I mean, this this won't be research. This will be having you read the tea leaves, so handle this however you want. But I'm wondering, uh, this has been, you know, for the for the most part, one man pushing this, right, to former President Trump. And, uh, and if, you know, uh, whenever he leaves the scene, um, uh, do you think we'll kind of settle back down on this issue? Or has, has a quote-unquote bad seed been introduced where— Maybe both parties will recognize, hey, um, th th there's some fragility and there's some vulnerability there that we could exploit, you know, post-election. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I think, you know, Donald Trump is, is certainly a, a figure that has, has you know, uh, fanned the flames uh, on this a little bit. Uh, one worrying trend in our country uh, that, that I see that, that I'm, I'm concerned about uh, uh, is— declining social trust in general, uh, that, that, uh, that people tend to have less esteem for, uh, for, for media, uh, whether it's uh, cable news or uh, traditional uh, media outlets. Uh, there's less trust in the media in the United States. There's less trust in our political institutions. And so, and, and those are trends that have existed to some extent. We see, see some decay in social trust through uh, the 1960s into the 1970s, an era of, of Vietnam and Watergate. It feels like we're entering another period of slide. And so to some extent, Donald Trump is fanning the flames, but, but to some extent, he's also, uh, in, in other ways, just a symptom uh, of broader trends going on in, in society in that respect. Uh, of, of, uh, of promoting distrust of our election institutions. So the, the thing that's, uh, that's troubling to me is that we have uh, a, a lot of difficulty in rebuilding that trust. And in, in the context where we have a lot of political tribalism uh, going on in our country right now, it's much more difficult to rebuild that trust and, uh, and, and so that, that speaks to a difficult road ahead. Uh, I don't think that Trump, uh, you know, should he, you know, at some point Trump will leave the political scene, uh, whether it's that he chooses not to run in 2024 uh, or if he runs and, and, and loses, uh, you know, or if he runs and wins. Uh, you know, there's, there's a variety of different outcomes, but at some point Trump will leave the scene. But when 
Uh, when significant political figures come and then leave the scene, they tend to leave a little bit of an impression uh, that that lingers. Uh, the the phrase "trickle down economics" uh, is is you know Ronald Reagan is is uh, is is well into the rearview view mirror at this point in in American politics, and yet left an imprint on the way Republicans think about economics that's lasted some uh, nearly forty years, uh, 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 approximately forty years, uh, after uh, he started uh, preaching uh, that that uh, approach to economics, and and thirty years uh, plus post presidency. Uh, so you know that's that's an indication of not not that I'm trying to make a, a statement positively or negatively towards that approach to uh, thinking about economics, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, as an indication of ways that uh, presidents can leave impressions or imprints on the ways we think about politics and the way we conduct our politics, and I think whether Trump uh, is now done or whether he's just getting started. Uh, that uh, that that the four years of Trump's administration uh, have and will continue to leave a mark on American politics that that reshape the way uh, we think about elections and and election integrity. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Damon Can, who is a professor of political science at Utah State University. Uh, more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking politics. It's an election year, and we're talking with Damon Can, Utah State University polit- uh, professor of political science. I want to talk about a couple specific races in Utah in this uh, election year. Senator Mike Lee is up for re-election, for example. Uh, first, continuing the theme of, uh, of elections, uh, Utah, I, I can't remember how long we've been on mail-in ballots. Well, it's it's been a little bit of a transition. Um, the uh, um, the the state legislature in I think it was about 2012 or 2014 uh, passed a law that said counties that would like to are permitted to go to vote by mail, uh, and it's been so it's been a gradual transition, which mm-hmm. is a nice thing. It gives people a chance to. Uh, to uh, to learn from other counties, counties that are ready to make the transition and feel like their the residents are, are are going to support that can do it, and counties that weren't ready could take a little bit more time. And what you usually see is is Utah's long had by mail absentee ballots, and so counties would kind of watch, and, and more and more voters in counties would say, just put me on the permanent absentee list and mail me a ballot. So many people in Utah were voting by mail using the absentee method uh, before it was the formal way that they conducted elections. Uh, and then you had uh, a few early adopters uh, like, like Weber uh, and, and uh, Cash uh, got in fairly early on, I think about 2016. Um, and then by 2020, it was uh, out of uh, concern for the pandemic that the legislature said, all right, everybody's going to do voting by mail in this election cycle. So 2020 was our first fully statewide election. But even in 2018, I would say probably two-thirds of the state or maybe more uh, would have been voting by mail uh, at that time. And in several counties, it had been even longer that they've been, been using the, the vote by mail mechanism. Do uh, if we had polls? Do we do we know if this, if this is popular or not? Yeah. So uh, you know, first we we have several other states: uh, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado 
that have a, a longer history with voting by mail than Utah has. Though uh, the, after those three, Utah would kind of be the next uh, in the country with most experience in, in vote by mail. And what surveys showed in uh, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado was that uh, the that when voters once voters had an experience with voting by mail that they tended to like it uh, that that they they were supportive they felt confident that their votes were counted as intended and then uh, we did some uh, I along with uh, some colleagues at the University of Utah and BYU uh, we did some uh, some work in uh, Davis uh, or, or excuse me I think it was Weber uh, where uh, after they had their first experience with vote by mail, where we reached out and uh, conducted a survey to find out how people in that county felt about uh, their their elections. And what we found was that people who voted by mail, uh, again, and had that experience, when before they'd done it, they had some reservations, uh, but were willing to give it a try. Post vote by mail, uh, we had a lot more support and enthusiasm. Uh, once they'd experienced it, they said, "This is great. I'd like to keep voting this way." Mm-hmm. By and large, you were mentioning during the break uh, an initiative that uh, wasn't on my radar, a failed initiative, nonetheless, which which uh, would have eliminated vote by mail. Yes, uh, there was a, a citizen uh, introduced initiative uh, in in Utah that had it been successful. Uh, would have required Utah to return exclusively to election day voting with no early voting, no absentee voting, no voting by mail, that the only way to vote in Utah would have been uh, to vote in person on election day. And uh, you know, certainly that's been our, our traditional f- uh, form of voting, though we've, we've been experimenting with, uh, with some different things. And, and now as a state, have a lot of uh, experience and, and actually have a, get a lot of respect. Uh, Ryan Cowley, our state elections director and his predecessor in that office, Justin Lee, uh, um, both uh, as they attend national conferences, get kudos for the things that they're doing, the level of integrity uh, and, and such that, that are happening in Utah's elections. But this uh, this initiative was proposed and went out as initiatives do before it go, qualifies for the ballot. You have to gather a certain number of signatures and you have to gather a certain number of signatures in 26 out of Utah's 29 counties in order to qualify an initiative for the ballot. And they were have, have not been successful in getting the requisite number of signatures. Uh, so I, I think what that tells you is that we definitely have a, a, a group of people in the state of Utah uh, who have reservations and concerns uh, about uh, about mail-in voting, but the fact that they couldn't gather a sufficient number of signatures to qualify that initiative for the ballot, I think, speaks uh, a lot about the the popularity of that reform, even uh, among even in a in a, a very conservative red state like Utah is that uh, reforms that make it easier to vote uh, are still popular because people want to vote. They want it to be easy and straightforward. And uh, our, our Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson uh, wrote an op-ed recently uh, where she made the case uh, that, that it's not a dichotomy between making it easier to vote but accepting fraud or making it harder to vote uh, as an effort to deter fraud. Uh, she makes, I think, a very compelling case uh, that it's possible to choose reforms carefully that make it 
uh, easy for people to engage with uh, the electoral system and to exercise their right to vote while doing that in a way that has appropriate and important safeguards to make sure that the election process has strong integrity and that the voice of the people is expressed. We just have about two minutes left. Um, I, I want to talk about Senator Lee. I've referenced him uh, a couple times. I think uh, he'll have two um, primary challengers in the Republican Party, right? Becky Edwards, Ali Isom. What, what, what are they saying that they're dissatisfied with, with Senator Lee and they want him— uh, I want to defeat him. That, that's a great question. I think both uh, Ali Isom and Becky Edwards are trying to make a case that uh, Mike Lee has been too conservative, uh, that, that he's, he's, uh, he's, he's gone too far to the right uh, for Utah. And uh, also, I think we'll, we'll probably voice some concerns about uh, Mike Lee's support uh, for Donald Trump during the Trump administration. Uh, I would argue that one of the best things that could happen to Mike Lee is to have not just one but two challengers Uh, because while there are uh, people in Utah who feel uh, some of those concerns about Mike Lee, there's also a lot of people in Utah that really like Mike Lee. Uh, and the effect, the net effect of having two primary challengers that are occupying this space a little closer to the center than Mike Lee splits that vote between the two of them. And uh, the, the likely outcome to me seems to be that with, with that vote divided, uh, it's going to be very difficult to defeat Mike Lee in a primary election. Just very quickly, 30 seconds, um, I referenced third parties. Uh, uh, do you think this is the year? <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. Uh, uh, you know, Evan McMullen, of course, has has pretty good name recognition in the state of Utah. And one thing that he has going for him that that I don't think anyone else has is that Mike Lee has actually voted for Evan McMullen before. He was public that in 2016 he cast a protest vote against Donald Trump and in favor of Evan McMullen in that presidential election. And so uh, it will be interesting to see how that, that folds out. Uh, I think uh, McMullen will definitely make some noise. Uh, but if there's a Democrat in the race, uh, then it makes the path to an independent victory in that race much more difficult. Well, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, interesting, and uh, I'm sure we'll be revisiting a lot of these issues as uh, the election year uh, rolls forward. Uh, Damon Can has been with us, Utah State University professor of political science. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.